Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do. Join me in turning to the book of Jonah, chapter number two. Jonah, chapter number two. Last week, we began in the first chapter of Jonah, which is sort of the heart of the story of Jonah, right? God had called Jonah to go. This unusual calling in that Jonah is a prophet of God. He's now been called to go to the city of Nineveh, a significant city in the Assyrian Empire, the arch enemy of the nation of Israel. Those are the people to whom Jonah has been called to go. And resistant due to his prejudice, his animosity toward the Assyrian people, Jonah chose rather to go in the opposite direction. The Bible tells us that Jonah went down to Joppa, and he went down into a ship boarding to travel to Tarshish, as far away from God's plan for his life as he could conceivably go. Eventually, Jonah is said to have gone down into the belly of the ship, and after that, Jonah goes down into the depths of the sea before being swallowed up by a great fish in the closing verse of Jonah chapter number one. Jonah goes down, 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 running away from the call of God on his life. In the belly of the fish, Jonah cries out to God. He prays. Jonah too gives record of Jonah's prayer there in the belly of the fish. A few years ago, I heard an interview with a man named Edgar Harrell. Edgar was the last surviving Marine from the USS Indianapolis that went down off the coast of the Philippines during World War II. It was the Indianapolis that delivered those two bombs that ultimately landed on Hiroshima, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He was a fascinating individual, and he talked about the work of God's providence in delivering him from that shipwreck. They went down by torpedo of the 900 men aboard the vessel. About 30 died from the initial blast. About 570 others died from drowning, heat exhaustion, the delirium of dehydration and the consumption of the salt water led many to actually kill their friends, their partners. They were, kill they were actively killing one another in their state of delirium. And then there were those many who died uh, as a result of the sharks that infested the waters where their ship went down. Only 300 of the 900 who went into the water eventually came out. Of his experiences, he explained, there are times when you pray. And there are times when you pray. In shark-infested waters with little hope for survival, you pray. And in the belly of a great fish, you pray. You have experienced personally, in all likelihood, if you are a follower of Jesus, the earnestness, the sincerity with which we pray in seasons of great distress. Maybe you've even wanted that you could master that sincerity, that earnestness in prayer in the good times just as you've mastered that sincerity in the bad. We want to be able to pray with that measure of earnestness at, at all times. Jonah provides us with a little insight as to how we pray under duress and some encouragement for us along the way, even in our shortcomings, to know how to best pray and, frankly, our shortcomings with regards to the presence of sin in our life. Jonah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. The Bible says here, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas. 
and the current overcame me. All your breakers and billows swept over me. But I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The waters engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth with its prison bars closed behind me forever. But you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation is from the Lord. The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry, onto dry land. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Verse 1 tells us that Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. The belly of a fish is a great place to pray from if earnestness and sincerity is what you're after in your prayer life. There can be from, from time to time the sort of wagging of the finger on the part of Christians toward those who find themselves in seasons of, of great danger or distress as Jonah describes it here. Someone is in a pinch. They sort of get what's often coined as jailhouse religion, and we can be critical of that. They've, they've made a mess, and now they're in this predicament, and now they're calling out to God. That's what they would do under those circumstances. I've never really been able to understand the criticism. What else are they supposed to do? When you get to the bottom, there is but one place to look. There is but one to whom we may look from the bottom. When God, through the circumstances of life, breaks our pride, strips us of all our self-confidence and our self-righteousness and our sense of individuality, when God strips us of the idols of our life, we're left but to look to heaven. And that's precisely what Jonah does in our passage. In verse 2, Jonah explains, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol. Sheol in the Old Testament is the term used for the grave in part, but it also alludes to, sometimes is used interchangeably for the place of the dead, for hell or Hades. It has a broad spectrum of meaning, the grave, death, and hell. It's a reminder to us of the significance of Jesus' victory in the New Testament over death, hell, and the grave. Jonah is saying here, I was in the grave, though living, I was nevertheless on the brink of death. I was in the place of the dead. I was virtually in the grave. I was in a hellish place, calling out to God. God heard my voice. He says, I cried to help from the belly of Sheol. You heard my voice. There's a change of pronoun here. Jonas talked a fair amount in verse 2 already of what his response is from the belly of the great fish, but now he turns his attention in the direction of God's work. You heard my voice. You threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, and the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. It sounds as though this is going to be entirely positive with the first line in the verse. You heard my voice. But Jonah assigns in the next few stanzas the distress he's in to the work of God's judgment against him. 
God could have allowed that Jonah continue on his course, that he continue on the wayward way, defying the will and the word of God. God had called Jonah to go to Nineveh. And in his prejudice, in his racism, in his animus for the people of Assyria, Jonah chooses to go the wayward way. And God could have allowed that he continue on this disastrous path. You think about God's saving work in Jonah chapter 2 as Jonah prays and celebrates with thanksgiving what God does in his life. We think of him being spat up on dry ground as the saving work. But there's saving force and saving effect in the very fact that God allows that Jonah find himself in this storm on a ship tumultuous seas now thrown overboard to the bottom of the sea and delivered by this fish. The very judgment of God against Jonah is his salvation. It's the very measure that corrects the course for Jonah, the rebellious prophet of God. Jonah assigns his place in the depths, in the heart of the seas, the currents that overwhelm him, the breakers and the billows that nearly drown him to the work of God in his life. The writer of Hebrews says that God chastens whom he loves. It's a reminder to us of the grace of judgment in our experience. You can continue to defy the will and the word of God. And, and for some of you, you've made, you've made outright decisions, overt decisions, to defy God's word, to defy God's will for your life. You know in your heart this morning that there's a pet sin that you have chosen again and again and again to defy. The grace of God is often his intervention, breaking our heart under the consequences of those decisions, of those sins, correcting our course and bringing us back to his will and his way. That in and of itself is an act of grace. Jonah doesn't make the mistake of assigning his place in the sea. The experiences he now undergoes to the circumstances of life. Jonah never once speculates that it was just a bad weather day. And this fish just happened to gobble me up. He understands and knows full well that where he is is the direct product of the decisions that he's made. He assigns his plight to the result of God's judgment in his life. Now, I'm not saying to you that every bad season of life is a direct product of some dreadful decision or sin in your life, but there ought to be a real accounting of ourselves when we find ourselves in difficult seasons. Is there a sin that I'm harboring in my heart? Is there something I'm holding fast to that I just will not let go of? Or is God working in some other way to shape me and refine me, to equip me for a future call in ministry? What is God doing by grace in my life at the given moment? If all things are being worked together for the good of those who love him, how is this set of circumstances to serve my good and the glory of his name? His purpose is always in our life, our growth in grace and sanctification. How am I growing in grace in this scenario in my life? Is there a sin in my heart? How is God moving me toward likeness in his son, Jesus? I don't know know what to do with this effort that seems to be an ongoing effort. It's a cultural thing, but it's also making waves in the church where we, we want to assign the bad things that happen to some unseen force not of God and the good things that happen to God. And I, I get that on some level. 
I'm not suggesting to you that God is culpable for any evil or wrongdoing. But I do want to remind you that a major theme of the book of Jonah is the absolute sovereignty of God over all things, not just the good things, but the bad things that make us who we are, that shape the course of our life, that serve as correctives to us and for us when we go the wayward way. And aren't we all inclined to go the wayward way? I am, I am more who I am today, which by the way is not much, as a result of the bad circumstances of life than any contribution, the good times, the good circumstances of life could, could have ever contributed. You're here today in all likelihood as a follower of Jesus because God has intervened sovereignly in your life often in painful ways to correct the course of your life to provide the necessary chastisement, the judgment, the consequence of sin that would correct your path and open your eyes to the desperate need for grace and mercy that can only be found in Jesus Christ. Jonah is clear-headed, sober-minded, and well-understanding of the fact that it is God who has intervened in the history of his life for his good and for the glory of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. Look at verse four. But I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. There are two references to your holy temple in our passage. It's a reminder to us of the sort of mental framework with which Jonah is working. We observed in last week's passage the ironic twist that Jonah seems to be working from a pagan worldview, whereas the pagans come to embrace a monotheistic Israelite understanding of how God is at work in the world. The, the, the pagans come to terms with the fact that the God of Israel is the creator of the heavens and the earth, the seas and its depth. But Jonah's operating according to this sort of mental outlook assigned to pagans where God's are, are constrained by or bound <clears throat> to certain geographical areas. The pagan system of God would be assigned to a mountain, to a sea, to a land, to a nation, to a city, to a state. And they were to stay confined within the boundaries of that particular area or that feature of the landscape. When Jonah refers here to your holy temple, he's referring to the temple of God in the city of Jerusalem. In the Hebrew mind, most closely associated with the immediate presence of God. Now think about what Jonah is asking for in our passage. That God would, from hundreds of miles away, in the city of Jerusalem, save to the uttermost in the depths of the sea. Jonah is asking that the God of Israel that he would have had in chapter 1 be assigned exclusively to the national boundaries of Israel, that he would now reach far across the sea and into its depths, that he himself would be delivered from the belly of that great fish. Jonah is asking that God would do for him what he would have otherwise withheld from the people of Nineveh. Jonah is asking that God would give him the grace he didn't want the people of Nineveh to experience. Here's the prejudice issue again for him. The hostility, the animus that Jonah has for the people of Assyria. 
He says, further, I've been banished from your, your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. I'm going to trust that you can reach even to here and to save to the uttermost. One of the things that's seldom considered when we talk about the Great Commission or Jesus' charge to the church that we would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We have, we have such a self-centered Western civilization focus. We almost never consider the reality that we are the ends of the earth. If there is a people anywhere in the world that ought to relish the reality that God is in no way constrained by ethnic or national boundaries, it is us. We are the end of the world people. And I would have you to know lest there's any confusion about this issue, that God is saving unto himself a people of every tribe and tongue and nation, a people all his own from the four corners of the world. We represent the ends of the earth people. We ought to be glad to celebrate that God's arm is not shortened, that he cannot somehow save. We don't typically give ourselves to this kind of thinking on some level, at least the level that this seems to be an issue in the days of Jonah. But there are other ways we do. Sometimes in preacher-pastor circles, especially in the seminary days, we'd talk about where we wanted to serve, and, and there was a, a bit of a church planning emphasis in my seminary days and where guys were going to plant and do those sorts of things. And there were those who were a bit more adventurous about the work they wanted to do. They wanted to press into hard places where darkness seemed to prevail and shine the light of the gospel. But there, there were many that would have far rather landed in the Bible belt where cultural Christianity and the comfort that could afford us as gospel ministers would serve the interest of certain ministries and certain churches that is fading away with each day that passes. But I want you to know that God is no less powerful to save in San Francisco, California than in Memphis, Tennessee. God saves with the same force. God saves with the same power. God saves by the same spirit in the heart of the 1040 window that he does in the Bible Belt South. God is not limited by ethnic or national boundaries. Not in the days of Jonah, not in our day. He saves to the uttermost, and he does so to the very ends of the earth. Jonah's desire here is that God be near him, even in what seems like a place far, far away from God, hundreds of miles removed from the holy temple in Jerusalem. And indeed, God saves. God was near even in a place that seemed far, far away. Verse 5, the Bible says, The waters engulfed me up to the neck. To the watery depths they overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth with its prison bars closed behind me forever. It, it sounds like, if you just read quickly, the prayer that Jonah is praying and thanking God for how he got him out. But here, he's, he's praying and thanking God for the fish. The belly of the fish is a dreadful place to be. But the belly of a fish is a better place than on the bottom of the sea drowning to death. 
What Jonah's describing here is being thrown into the water and sinking to the bottom of the sea, to the foundations of the mountain. They're wrapped in seaweed before this fish appointed by God comes to gobble him up and to provide him with safe passage for three days and for three nights. The belly of the fish may be no place to be, but it's better than dead in the mind of Jonah. And here he's celebrating the provision of God. We think of the belly of the fish as an act of judgment, and indeed, on some level it is. But in the moment, it is the saving work of God that Jonah would be delivered in this gracious way. God is at work, even in Jonah's chastisement, even in the acts of judgment for his salvation, for his good, and ultimately for God's great glory. Jonah notes in the closing stanza of verse number six, but you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. God saved Jonah from the bottom of the sea. He was saving Jonah when he sent the storm. He was saving Jonah when he was tossed overboard. He was saving Jonah when he was sinking to the bottom of the sea. He was saving Jonah when a great fish gobbled him up. And he was saving Jonah when he spat him out onto dry ground. God actively working in his life through these acts of judgment to correct the course of his life. From time to time, some, someone will talk to me about how God is stirring in their heart. Conviction is coming. There's a growing understanding of the gospel. And I, I, want, I want to warn them in each instance. Surrender before this thing gets painful for you, Right? If, if, if God is after you, he will get you. He will, he will get you. I don't mean this wrathful, vengeful thing. I mean grace. When God is pursuing you in grace, when God is seeking after you in grace, he will not lose. You can seek, you can actively seek to defy his will, to be at odds with God's purpose and God's work in your life. But he has yet to lose, and he will not lose. I just want to say, this is, this is where the language of break down your pride and yield to the wor work of God, the work of God's spirit comes from. I say this so often in the pulpit, and this is precisely the thing that I mean. Stop wrestling against God. You will not win. The book of James and again, in 1 Peter, the Bible says, God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And the language there is God is actively fighting against the proud, but granting lavish grace to those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. God is actively fighting against you and your prideful egotism that says, I somehow, some way know better about what I need to do with my life than the creator of life. You will not win that battle. The outcomes will only be disastrous for you. God gives grace to the humble, but he is actively fighting against the proud. Here it is, God who saves Jonah from the bottom of the sea. You raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. There really is a powerful picture of the work of God in salvation in the life of Jonah. This is true in a couple of different ways. The closing verse of chapter one reads, now the Lord had appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the fish three days and three nights. There's a point in Jesus' ministry where they come to him and they are seeking signs and wonders. Demonstrate for us, show us, give us evidence that you are who you say you are, Jesus. 
And Jesus says, no sign will be given this generation except the sign of Jonah. Jesus is, of course, speaking of his own death on the cross, his burial in the garden grave, and his resurrection after three days and three nights of death. Jesus would rise in victory, conquering Sheol, death, hell, and the grave. But in a more personal way, salvation is illustrated in the experiences of Jonah here in the belly of the fish and God's deliverance. Jonah's there in the fish, repentant, right? Do you agree? Is Jonah repentant? Absolutely he is. Jonah would have done anything God commanded him to do. We're going to see in just a moment. Jonah does not have it all sorted out. Jonah's Jonah's worldview, his framework has not entirely changed. But in the belly of the fish, Jonah would do anything God instructed him to do, and you would too. Repentance, as it's referenced in the New Testament, is about beholding Jesus as having such immeasurable value. We would gladly forego any of the privileges or offerings this world might ever make. He becomes our great treasure, the pearl of great price, and we would sell it all to have the treasure that is our Savior, Jesus. Jonah is repentant. Is he believing? Does Jonah have faith in the belly of the fish? You better believe it. Everything that Jonah says is orthodox. It's doctrinally sound. It's true. It's a precise description of who God is. He is the God who saves. He is the God who abides in the holy temple of Jerusalem. He is not to be counted among those worthless idols. He is the giver of faithful love. He is intervening sovereignly in the very activities of nature. He orchestrates wind and wave and storm, even the appointment of a great fish. Jonah's understanding and belief in God is pristine. It is a model for us that we would affirm the very doctrinal commitments that Jonah enumerates in the prayer he prays here. Jonah repents and Jonah believes. But don't ever confuse the invitation of the gospel that we would respond with repentance and faith with the saving work of God. Jonah repents and believes in the belly of the fish, but it is God who saves. You need to be careful to make that distinction, to understand that we are saved by grace through faith, not of works lest any man should boast, yet that it is entirely the work of God that we be saved. Jonah would bring to an end his prayer in verse number nine, noting that salvation is from the Lord. The work of our salvation is the work of God and the work of God alone. Jonah doesn't come forth from the sea because he's a good swimmer. Jonah Jonah isn't delivered from the depths of the sea because by coincidence he was swept up by this great fish. God is actively at work for the salvation of Jonah. Perhaps you this morning could look back, reflect on your life experience, and remember when God actively intervened in your life for your salvation. There is this want, and we all have this want. We all have this want. It's a want that's preventing you from hearing or sensing the full force of what I'm describing even at this moment. To believe that somehow, some way, we're making a contribution to our salvation. Especially once we're removed from that initial conversion experience. 
we look back and we, we, we think to ourselves, even when we wouldn't dare say it out loud, there must have been something about me. There must have been something about my background. The circumstances of my life were such that God would show me a favor perhaps exclusive to me and a handful of others. And I would remind you yet again that salvation is the work of God and the work of God alone. I, I, I can remember making this discovery and, and the lowliness of heart that I felt in, in that moment. Because I really wanted to hold on to that. You really want to hold on to that. The notion that, yes, I repented. I believed. I, 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 I will be critical of the use of that term in just a moment. Listen, it is God who must actively involve himself in the inner workings of your life that you would experience the gift of his grace and the fullness of salvation. It's an unmistakable experience. Jesus calls the new birth. Virtually everyone in our culture believes it's hard to find someone who would acknowledge, at least out loud, that they do not believe. But the Bible warns that even the demons believe and they tremble. What you need is the new birth, that God would actively intervene in your life, giving you the eyes to see the depth of your own depravity, the great consequences of your sin, and the immeasurable beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ who bled and died in our place, being raised again on the third day. Make no mistake, it was God who saved Jonah from the bottom of the sea. He is literally on the brink of death when God delivers him by a fish, intervening in every conceivable way. Now the sad reality in Jonah's prayers, and not everything here is positive. It's true it's right, and Jonah's not far off, but he manages to hold on to a measure of selfishness and self-righteousness, even in this experience. Look at verse 7. As my life was fading away, I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love, but as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Remember, Jonah's reluctance is all about his prejudice toward the Assyrian people. Prejudice and pride, prejudice and self-righteousness. Prejudice and an unhealthy understanding of who we are always go hand in hand. The only way that you can make room in your heart for prejudice against another people or another person is by having a higher regard of yourself than you're deserving of. Prejudice as a system only works if you think you're better than someone else. Now, listen again at the first person I, me pronouns used in verses 7 and following. I remembered Yahweh. My prayer came to you. Then in verse 8, which is shifting gears a bit, he says, those who cling to worthless idols forsake faithful love. He's assigning a measure of depravity to those who give themselves to idolatry that he believes himself to be unfazed or untouched by. 
Again in verse 9, but as for me, I will sacrifice. I will fulfill what I have vowed. You could do the same back in verse 2 of the same chapter. I called to the Lord. I cried out for help in the belly of Sheol. Now what Jonah is describing is true. It's not far off base. But when you're describing the saving work of God, there is very little room for first-person personal pronouns. Salvation is of the Lord. I, I looked at this in, in this week's preparation for this morning's message and began to make some notes of this. And I wondered if this wasn't just a preacher thing imposing itself on a passage. But every Jonah scholar I could find was in agreement that there is, again, this sediment of pride that remains in Jonah's heart and is reflected in the prayer that he prays. He's still regarding himself as better than the Assyrians, specifically better than the Ninevites. Jonah still sees himself as superior to those he's called to serve. And again, Jonah is asking that God would grant to him what he would have withheld from the Ninevites. Jonah wants grace. In spite of his inability to see the full measure of grace he needs, he still wants grace. We ought not be surprised by this. We shouldn't be surprised by this in the book of Jonah. Because Jonah is never really pictured as the hero prophet. The book of Jonah even ends with a huge question mark hanging over its conclusion. Does Jonah ever get it right? Will Jonah ever figure out that God sees value in people of every tongue and tribe and nation? Or will he just live a miserable and bitter, fruitless life? Does Jonah get it? Jonah's never the hero of the book of Jonah. If you've confused that... It needs to be corrected this morning. God is the hero of Jonah. This is the story of the world's worst missionary. And in spite of his brokenness, in spite of his many failures, God is still at work moving through his life, saving even from among the nations, holding on to this bit of self-righteousness. This is really not shocking when we think in terms of our personal experiences. Were you, in the immediate aftermath of your salvation, in a place of perfect righteousness? Or was God working in those gracious ways, shaping and refining some pretty serious rough edges? If I shared with you this morning the kind of things that were struggles for me in the first six months of walking with Jesus, you would be absolutely astounded. You might be embarrassed that I'm your pastor. I think of the race of faith as, as a marathon as opposed to a sprint. When you're running a sprint, everyone starts in the same place. You start in the starting blocks, and the starting blocks are set, especially when you're running a track, so that no runner has an advantage. It looks as though they're stair-stepped. They're stair-stepped because there's a distance difference depending on which lane in the track you're running on. Everyone starts from the same point. But we're not running a sprint race as followers of Jesus. We're running a great marathon. When marathons start, everyone starts in this mass of humanity, this large pack. And up toward the front, there are those who expect themselves to have a better pace than those toward the middle or the back. And so they get themselves ahead of the traffic so they're not an impediment to those, um, so that others aren't an impediment to them. And they're able to pull away and, and to run their race at a pace that is to exceed that of most behind them. 
There are those that are sort of in the middle of their kind of the average runner, and they don't want too much traffic, or at times they just want to use this mass of humanity to help them pace themselves over the course of the race. And then there are those that start way in the back. I was one of those that started way in the back. And some of you were some of those who started way in the back. In those early days, the struggles, the things that you're wrestling with, you're trying to be discerning about, the things you're trying to sort out in your life are things that would never be on the radar of those who start at the front of the pack. But that doesn't negate this Godward upward trajectory about your life, this experience of God sanctifying and shaping us and molding us and making us over time. It doesn't mean we ever get it mastered. It doesn't make those at the front of the pack more faithful followers of Jesus than those who start in the back. It's just the difference in the experiences we undergo as followers of Christ, being brought from darkness to light. Some of us in the pit of darkness, being brought to gospel light, shaped and refined, molded and made over in the image of Jesus over time. It really shouldn't come as a great surprise to us that even in the belly of the fish, the shortcomings of the prophet Jonah are still very much shining through. The belly of the fish may be a great place to pray with earnestness and sincerity, but it also tends to be a place where bargains are made that can never be seen through. Our inability to see ourselves for how truly broken we are is always apparent in the belly of the fish prayer. Oh Lord, if you will do A, B, or C, I will never do A, B, or C again. And just as soon as we find ourselves out of the crack that is ABC, we're there again doing the ABC. This is kind of our experience. Jonah's holding on to this self-righteousness that led to his reluctance in the first place. And even as the book closes, he holds on to that. God continues to work in his life to alleviate his sense of self-righteousness. This reality that salvation is from the Lord, Jonah's acknowledgement that it was God who saved him from the depths of the sea, when well understood, should humiliate all of our pride and lead to an understanding that but for the grace of God, go, we go the way of those we wag the finger at, that we are altogether broken, that we are not our sufficiency, but Christ alone can restore in us what so desperately needs to be made right closing line of verse number nine says salvation is from the lord this is the way jonah closes it and jonah would spend the rest of his life i suppose grappling with wrestling with the fullness of that statement and what it means for him salvation is from the lord this is true of jonah's deliverance from the sea but it's also true of ultimate salvation our salvation experienced by faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. It is the work of God. We might ask, given the way Jonah's self-righteousness is reflected in verses 7 and 8, why God would be gracious to save Jonah from the belly of the fish. We might also ask of ourselves personally, why, given our propensity to sin, even sin after our, our salvation, would God ever work to move on our behalf? The answer is in our passage, because salvation is not about what we have done or what we have contributed. Salvation is from the Lord. 
Our salvation is not the result of our getting our act together or somehow figuring it out. It's not about pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, wising up, or maturing over time. It's about humbly surrendering to the authority of Jesus over our life, believing in him with all of our heart, repenting of our sin because we see him as bearing greater value than anything this world could ever offer. Brothers and sisters, we are to be saved by the grace of God or we are not to be saved at all. Often in conversation, gospel conversation, I'll, I'll find this kind of response. I, I'm going to get my act together and then I'm going to come to church. Or I'm going to get my act together, I'm going to cease sinning in this way. Recently it was, I'm going to, I'm going to stop living with my girlfriend and, and, then, and then I'm going to be baptized. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clean my act up. I'm going to cease my addiction. I'm going to cease my immorality. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop doing this thing that is destroying me. And then, then I'm going to follow Jesus. That is so much at odds with the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That invites us to come with all of our junk with all of our imperfections, with all of our sin, with all of our nastiness, with filthy hands before the cross of Jesus Christ and to surrender wholly before him, acknowledging that we don't have the power to overcome the sin that so easily ensnares us except for the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit received only by faith in Jesus. You must come to him or your life will be this vicious cycle of trying to, to self-improve by your own will and determination, only finding your addictions and your besetting sins moving from one category to the next. Only Jesus can make right what we have made so wrong. Salvation is not the work of our hands. It is of the Lord. We ought to rejoice in that. Because it means for us that regardless of who we are and what we've done, no matter how gross or detestable our sins may be, no matter what baggage we bring, no matter how bloodied our hands might be, that there's a place for us in the kingdom. I'm confident that there are those of you here this morning whom the Lord is pursuing. God has been stirring in your heart. You've come to understand something of the message of the gospel. That Jesus died in our place on the cross. That he rose again the third day. That he invites us to turn from sin and to believe in him. To receive his promises. The gift of forgiveness and eternal life. You've been wrestling with that. That's stirring. God's spirit is stirring in your heart. My exhortation to you this morning is that you would break down your pride. And yield to the work of God. There are those of you who are here as believers. You've trusted Jesus. God has saved you. God is marking the course of your life. And you've felt the stirring in your spirit that God's calling me to a work. God's calling me to a ministry. God is calling me to repent of this sin that I've allowed to invade and overtake my journey with Jesus. But you like the sin. So you've quenched the convicting power of his Holy Spirit. Break down your pride. Yield to the work of God's Holy Spirit. 
God's been at work in your heart, moving you to take some next steps in your journey with Jesus. Maybe it's baptism. Maybe it's being joined to a church. Maybe it's going on a short-term mission trip. Maybe it's going to the mission field. Maybe it's serving in some subtle way. Maybe it's adopting. Maybe it's foster care. Maybe it's just asking that a, a wayward family member would give you a gospel hearing. Maybe it's reconciling with someone that you've been at odds with for decades, but God has been stirring in your heart. Break down your pride yield to the work of God's Spirit. We will, like Jonah, spend the rest of our days relishing the reality, trying to comprehend the magnitude of what it means to say, salvation is of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth and for these moments to give consideration to these principles. I pray that you would help us to hide them away in our hearts that we might not sin against you. God, I pray that by the power of your spirit, you would search us over, examine us, Lord, and even in our resistance to your will and to your word, overpower us with faith by grace, compel us to come. Lord, we ask that you would move in those often uncomfortable ways to correct and change the course of our life, to call us away from sin and to help us to feel the sting of sin's consequence. Move us to repentance and faith. And I pray that our response to the reading and preaching of your word in the next moments would bring you great honor and praise. And I ask it in Jesus' name.